said, oh yeah, Showtime's, it's now Paramount Plus with Showtime. You know, like we're not even going to overthink it. It's literally just a shingle, and that quite truly is what it is. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, February 6th. Today on Media Monday, John Kelly and I talk about the decline and fall of Showtime, once a heavy hitter in premium television, but today, little noticed and soon to be bundled into Paramount Plus. What happened? We'll also talk about Nikki Haley announcing a 2024 Republican presidential campaign. How will the press cover these non-Trump GOP candidates polling in the low single digits? We hear about all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. Monday, everybody. Uh, if it's Monday, it's Media Monday here at the Powers That Be, and I'm joined by John Kelly. How you doing, man? How's Jersey? Oh, I'm doing all right, Peter. I've been thinking about you this week. Tough week after uh, Joey Business playing dodgeball <laughs> a little earlier in the season than he probably wanted to. You sent me a couple heated texts late in that game about all the blown calls and the shitty officiating and how you were robbed. And I, I let you enjoy your own personal grievance session. But I have to tell you, I think the better team won in the end. And there's always next year, buddy. I think that's a fair take. I mean, I do think there were four to six terrible calls down the stretch that hurt the Bengals. No, nobody nobody asked chances, Osada like, like, to tackle a quarterback out of bounds when he's running on a, yeah. on a busted ankle. But but fair enough. Uh, well, I, I brought up Jersey because I want to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Sean Mills, yeah. a fellow Montclair guy. His dad passed away last week and I was reading the obit and it's a really colorful obit. His father loved Cincinnati Chili, which warmed my heart. Um, but also, apparently back in the day, he was a bouncer at a place called Tierney's Tavern in Montclair. Yep. Have you been there yet? Yep. I want to go with you. You're welcome anytime. Uh, <laughs> Tierney's has a cameo in The Sopranos. It is, uh, uh, I think, Bobby Bagliari um, and Tony are are there. And uh, there are no windows in Tierney's. So um, <laughs> make whatever judgment you want, Peter. But it looks a lot different than Santa Monica and Venice. So you'll be in for a surprise, my friend. But Sean and I cannot wait to get you there. And, and um, we're thinking about <laughs> him and Gab a lot. Don't talk to me like I'm a bougie green juice matcha person from venice i'm from the east coast bozo yeah yeah you can't get your sweet green delivered to tyrannies <laughs> that's a good point they're not they're not lighting sage and tyrannies every night before they open um for for the Mm-mm. happy hour rush um <laughs> hey john there are a couple things i want to talk to you about today one of them is a little bit of what we talked about last week which is sort of how the press is covering 2024 but i want to talk to you about something uh, Matt Bellany wrote for us at Puck late last week about Showtime. Showtime mm-hmm. is being kind of bundled into Paramount Plus, and it's going to be called technically like Paramount Plus Showtime. Like that's the brand. But it's basically Geniuses. just like Geniuses. a white <laughs> genius marketing. But it's basically just like a winding down of Showtime. And one thing that mm-hmm. jumped out at me from that was just sort of like I blinked, and like in a couple years, like Showtime went from being a – blue chip premium add-on slash streamer to being a total zero other than yellow jackets which is a great show i can't wait for the for season two which is coming back soon hopefully but like you know he referenced in his piece back in 2012 
2013, that era, 10 years ago, like peak television, like mm-hmm. legacy TV, all those like anti-hero dramas like Homeland and Ray Donovan. And then there was stuff like Shameless and Billions came along later. Yeah. And like Showtime was a big deal. It's also for us like when we were growing up, like it was a thing that you would get along Absolutely. with like Cinemax and HBO if you wanted on top of your cable thing. And now it's just sort of like totally fizzled in the streaming world. And I'm curious what your your view on that is. Like, why did that happen? It's funny. I was having a flashback when this news came down earlier in the week and then certainly reading Matt's, like, just as usual, remarkably brilliant piece. I remember having lunch with an executive at HBO years and years ago, like definitely more than 10 years ago. And he was explaining to me that Cinemax, uh, he, asked, he asked me, how much do you think Cinemax makes a year? And I said, I don't know, a couple hundred million dollars. And it turned out it was more than a billion. At least this guy quoted me more than a billion because it was bundled with HBO, which was a, a billion dollar uh profit business 10 or so years ago in the retransmission fee business model of premium pay tv meaning every service provider spectrum optimum cablevision comcast etc they needed to pay these networks to carry the fees so if you had a couple hit shows you could demand many many dollars i think espn you know famously was commanding like five or six dollars of the 120 bucks you paid a month in cable HBO could demand a considerable number, and that's how I was able to, to bundle in Cinemax for a, a billion, which still makes my eyes fly out of my head. But Showtime <laughs> could too. And Showtime was always smaller. There's no doubt. It was always more boutique. But it was a $700 million a year business as recently, I think, um, profit uh, as um, you know, the early 2000s. It's a Bill Carter article mm-hmm. um, that I re- referred to the other night. And it could do that because it had... Those shows that you mentioned, you know, uh, and there was a steady stream of it, and there was a mantra in the television business that you needed two hits, right? Two hits meant that it was worth someone picking up the phone to Time Warner Cable or whatever it was called then and say, yeah, I'll pay extra for Showtime. I'll pay, I'll pay the five bucks extra for the Showtime bundle as part of my cable bundle a month because I want to watch Dexter, because I want to watch The Affair, whatever it was. And that was the extraordinary revenue model of television where you could make infinite gobs of money for stuff that nobody ever watched right you're, you're the one percent of content carried the other 99 percent uh, and when the unbundling happened in i guess in, you know largely in the last 10 years but certainly in the, in the last you know five or six these brands like showtime which was always smaller than hbo weren't big enough to demand their own platforms. I mean, look, if HBO itself wasn't big enough to demand its own platform, then, then Showtime certainly wouldn't be. And so the unit economics fundamentally change, where fewer and fewer people are paying for cable. They weren't necessarily going to pay for premium add-on packages like Showtime, and Showtime was already distributing its shows through other platforms. So it couldn't make as much money. It couldn't be as profitable. And uh, you find yourself in a situation where, frankly, in media, everything is getting colossally larger. And mm-hmm. so these like totemic brands like Showtime are now just shingles on these increasingly large edifices. And, and what's kind of funny about this story is the way that Bob Bakish, the CEO of Paramount Global, the, you know, this sort of Franken companies uh, in, in the most um, transparent way, said, oh, yeah, Showtime, it's now Paramount Plus with Showtime. You know, like we're not even going to overthink it. It's literally just a shingle. And that quite truly is what it is. Speaking of Paramount Plus, like whenever we can't come up with anything to watch, like Katie and I go back and watch old Survivors, which is why we subscribe to Paramount Plus. I'm having a hard time... The navigation, the U, the the UX is not great on. Um, yeah, Paramount it's Plus, terrible. If you're listening, Matt wrote that back in 2012. Again, like 
kind of when they were peaking, both in the press and also with viewers, they said in that Bill Carter piece, 21 million subs back in 2012, yeah. which was close, close-ish to HBO, which had 28 million at the time. But, you know, that's sort of like a horse race or something. Like, they come up behind you, like, they might make a play, and then they just fade in the in the, in the the final stretch, and they just sort of disappeared. But, I don't know, this is all impressionistic on my part, because I don't have a ton of insight like you and, and Matt do. But when my friend Scott Conrad and I were shopping the sitcom we wrote, Embeds, about campaign reporters, this would have been 2013, I think. Michael DeLuca jumped on as a producer, and, like, we had meetings at, I want to say, like, FX... Amazon, speaking of changes, at the time, Amazon had just started doing scripted stuff and it was like, mm-hmm. they didn't have any hits and we were like, eh, I don't know if I'd want to go to Amazon. <laughs> now we'd be like, right. yes. We didn't get any bites at HBO, but we got a meeting at Showtime and I don't have a lot of memories about it, but I do remember, um, other than the fact that DeLuca had a Tesla at the time, an early Tesla, like 10 <laughs> years ago, was like, we were hyped. Like if we could get this on Showtime, oh sure. my fucking God, that would have been like a huge deal. And, you know, now I just can't remember the last time I thought about Showtime other than Yellow Jackets. Like, but yeah, I mean, I, I let my Showtime subscription like lapse, I think like in 2017 or something. I was like, I just don't watch this stuff enough. Totally. No, they made so many strategic mistakes in, in retrospect and look, certainly many people did, but you made a good point, which is in our youth, Showtime competed for projects with HBO. It certainly m- maybe was unable to, to pay the you know, price per hour that HBO was going to pay for the Sopranos or Westworld, but, but it competed. But as the model changed, as Netflix reoriented the industry and you needed much, much, much more money to, um, to be able to, um, to have the best content, Showtime wasn't even getting these meetings. Like, they couldn't get in the room with these creators for these big, buzzy shows. They just couldn't possibly afford it. So their strategy would sort of reorient around getting slightly less expensive stars mm-hmm. to do more character-driven work, extend them three or four seasons beyond where they should have ended. I'm, I'm thinking of Billions in particular, or the Homeland kind of fit that bill too. And it was just it was cheaper to work, but it was it was harder to break through. So when they did break through with shows like Yellow Jacket, it, it became actually a sort of rarity. It was unusual. And we inadvertently talk about this dynamic a lot on the show, which is the difficulty of redefining gravity in media. When you're getting smaller and everyone else is getting bigger, it's really, really hard. That's kind of the CNN dynamic that we touch on a lot, that it's it's hard to shrink to grow. And mm-hmm. so what what is happening here is they're just shrinking as Paramount Plus grows. Of course, the, the moral of the story is that Paramount Plus, with all these enormous like genre-defining brands, CBS, Showtime, all the IP of Paramount. I was watching Ferris Bueller with my nine-year-old last weekend. And, you know, you, you see Paramount. You think oh, the, the library is just extraordinary. That's not big enough, right? Like the totality of that is not nearly big enough. So, uh, of course, Showtime tried to compete with its own streaming product. And that was woefully too small to operate in this marketplace. So mm-hmm. it, it, it just, it's just a humbling reminder of how... We're entering a Google Facebook era of of media where I don't know if there's going to be a duopoly. I don't think the DOJ will let it get to that point. But there are there are like 10 major streamers now. They're probably going to be five in five years. And then maybe we get down to three or four. And that's not including, you know, whatever uh, Google decides to do. It's uh, it's a it's a rapidly uh, shrinking landscape. And, and you'll see the long tail of that on the creative side, too, where there, there are going to be fewer shows and, uh, and probably less creativity. John, when we come back, I'm going to ask you about how you as an editor would tell your reporters to cover 
Republicans in 2024 who aren't named Donald Trump. back everyone john um we talked last media monday and i talked to tara a bunch um on our podcast last week about trump's first campaign swing in new hampshire and south carolina but it's clear mike pompeo is going to run for president sounds like ron DeSantis will Mm -hmm. run for president mike pence might run for president uh there's probably some others out there but nikki haley has announced that she's announcing and she's going to run for president um she's polling around like three percent in the early states again super early but i'm curious like you were my editor at, at Vanity Fair. You're step back now that you're a you know a media CEO and an entrepreneur, <laughs> and a very serious business person. Um, but you know how would how would you direct like a newsroom to approach something like Nikki Haley's announcement? I mean, do you like assign a reporter to be dedicated to her from here until the Iowa caucuses, or if she drops out before then, or do you like poke fun? Like what like what do you what do you do there? I'm just curious, like, if you're not named Donald Trump and you're running for president, how's the press going to cover you? I, I worry I'm unqualified to answer this question because, <laughs> you, you know, um, I think you know what I'm going to say, which is, first of all, I was walking through a bookstore. I saw a copy of uh, the hardcover of Mike Pompeo's book. He is fundamentally unrecognizable, I should say, at this point. I, I didn't even know who he was. He looks like he has truly um, had just every, every sort of cosmetic uptouch you could have when, when running for president. He, he, it's not quite the playbook that he wanted to create there, but it, it's notable. With Nikki Haley, it is obviously a ploy. Uh, it's, a, it's a ploy upon a ploy. I think it's silly to treat a ploy with a ploy, like to suggest, as Arianne Huffington once did, that you would only cover Donald Trump in the entertainment section. Like, obviously, that's silly. It is news that this person, who is a very accomplished politician, is running for president. It, it is news um, largely because it, it represents a, a strategy of how people are running now, which is they're trying to preempt one another. It looks like yeah. Trump tried to preempt everyone and it didn't work. And now actually he's raised gobs of money, but he's going to have to keep raising more and more money because when you when you announce that early, a payroll begins and you've got to keep extending your burn. And I actually, uh, just based on the low wattage turnout for Trump, um, I know he has access to a huge small donor network, but I think that it's going to be harder than many uh, conceive to um, to keep this operation uh, going at the scale it, it needs to be, which means more <laughs> more charging of the New York Times and CNN for uh, for spots on the plane. What's interesting about Nikki Haley and where I would direct attention, and, and certainly Tara's done a, a fantastic job of this, is um, recognizing that some people either run for president because they want to be president and some people run for president because they want to be something else. And she is running for president because she wants to be something else, which may be a cabinet secretary in a Republican administration. No, she, she wants to be president. Uh, she wants to be president. <laughs> I think not of not of this world, though. I, it just it just seems like she um, I'm not saying she's like of her right mind that she will be. I'm just right. saying like no, she doesn't enough. want to be a cabinet secretary. Yeah, she did that. I think I think we agree that, yes, she, she's an ambitious person, but there's no lane that seems to be open for right. her in, in this cycle. But there's no other job besides giving speeches for a lot of money. And, you know, she's yeah. too young to lobby. Once you do that, you, you cannot turn back in this industry. Um, she doesn't want to go to the private sector, I, I think, yet also because it, it provides no return. But she's she's running to elevate her, her name ID. And what's funny about that opportunity is that it's a very defensive strategy that she's endeavored upon here where she's she's announcing that she's going to announce in two weeks, which seems to be an opportunity to make sure she can get enough people out and energized for the announcement. And then she's hoping to beat Pompeo and Pence and, whoever, and Youngkin and whoever else to this sort of mid lane between DeSantis 
and Trump. And it just doesn't seem confident and it doesn't seem like very, very self-declared. So I think that you sort of have to recognize the impotence of the approach. Although I do think she will be able to raise a meaningful amount of dough mm. on the issue in particular. She's a staunch um, uh, supporter of Israel, you know, and which a point she manifested often during her UN days. So I think that will yeah. keep her afloat for a while. What do you think, Peter? This is your wheelhouse. I mean, uh, the money thing's important. So you got to announce early so you can raise money. And, and she's going to have to raise sort of larger check money rather than small donor because she doesn't have the grassroots sort of fan base that Trump does. Keep in mind, she used to. Um, in 2010, when she ran the gubernatorial primary in South Carolina, um, she was losing. And she was a Tea Party kind of small government type. Sarah Palin came in out of nowhere, endorsed her. She took off like a rocket ship. And she was she was famous back then. And I mean, I think she's like the first time I met her was like 2008, 2009 in, in Myrtle Beach, like at a bar mm-hmm. or something like when there was some Republican gathering. And like it was clear she was a hustler, like and had designs on right. higher office. And so I think she's lost that small donor uh, thing. So she she had to be in the race to ra- to have fundraisers and pay for all the campaign and start start hitting the ground early. The other thing is interesting is and I I. I know this because I covered Nikki and Bobby Jindal um, when he was um, governor of Louisiana. That's, that's RGA name you don't hear all the time um, anymore. Wow. The Indian American money pipeline is big time too. Hmm. A lot of doctors and lawyers out there who are, you know, yes. Indian sons of immigrants who love Nikki Haley, love Bobby Jindal, and will write big checks too. Um, it's fun. It's like the Indian diaspora really pays attention to. Um, these American politicians, like if you Google, just Google News, Nikki Haley right now, like you'll get tons of hits from like the Hindustan Times and like all these like mm. Indian media sites. It's really interesting. But I saw Sarah Longwell and Tim Miller speak at this Bulwark event in L.A. a couple of weeks ago. And like they were sort of making fun of Nikki a little bit. Um, but Sarah said something kind of insightful, which was like her chances are between 3%, somewhere between 3% and 100% that she's a Republican nominee. So it's like <laughs> probably closer to three. But like if you're on a debate stage yeah. with Trump, DeSantis, Pompeo, Mike Pence, and like assuming like Christy Nome doesn't run or whatever, like you're a woman and you're a brown woman. And like that's a differentiator for people. And mm-hmm. like that's a small thing that like a low information type voter would pay attention to. I just don't know necessarily what her message is going to be. And unlike DeSantis, who's been governing in Trump times, Nikki was governing pre-Trump. And she did a lot of stuff, some good stuff, taking down the Confederate flag in South Carolina, for example. But she just doesn't have a ton to point to in the Trump era other than I serve for Donald Trump (laughs) at the UN. And like I did an episode of my Snapchat show about this recently, but like, she was for Marco Rubio and she was attacking Trump and then she was for Trump and then she's been against Trump and like she's changed her mind a lot and given interviews about Trump. And like even Trump came out and gave a quote to Vanity Fair or something a couple of years ago. Uh, he was like, I, every 15 minutes, Nikki Haley changes her mind about me. And so like he's going to go in hard <laughs> on her. I just, you know, the only way right now that Trump loses a Republican primary is if it's a head to head race. And DeSantis actually proves that he's good in the national spotlight Um, and he lives up to his uh, hype. You know, the more candidates are in the race, I guarantee you Trump people like want Nikki Haley in the race because it gives them Mm -hmm. a foil and it gives it allows them to make this a plurality race rather than a head to head. And that's how he won in 2016. You know, we'll see. We'll see what she does. I'm just curious what sort of forward looking, coherent message she has um, other than 
it's a great day in South Carolina and I'm, I've been a governor and I've been a UN ambassador, but like, so what, who cares? Like, what are you talking about? How do you turn the page and, and, and really fulfill the kind of new generation leadership that you've been talking about on Fox news in the last couple of weeks? Well, you, you make a good point, And actually uh, you're reminding me of, of a, something that we, we've talked about privately before, which is the other side of my thesis on this about how she's entering because once you enter, you know, you elevate your profile and anything can happen. The other piece of it is that these races are longer than ever. You know, they're, they're, they're basically two-year primaries, and shit does happen. DeSantis could turn out to be a national dud. We just don't know that now. Or there may be some oppo that somebody is able to spill. And, and one of the reasons why you do see people who seem to be just remarkably uncharismatic, like Pence and Pompeo and, and Yunkin in the race, is because they recognize that unforced errors occur and they certainly trump used to be immune to them but i don't think anyone feels like that's the case any longer desantis has not been put in positions that are beyond his control to this point you know it'll it'll start to look really different to your point when when he's got to be at the state fair when he's being asked questions by reporters he's never met any you know before in iowa when he's he'll, he'll be stretched in a way that will be revealing one thing you have to give to Haley is she is a very disciplined uh, retail politician, and she is a, a capable communicator, and, and she may feel uh, more comfortable in this environment than some of the other people around her. And you're right, she does have key differentiation, but Good she point. also has some actually like very, very valid tactical skills as a politician in what is... Um, like this is like not a, a bettable game in in my mind to this point. Like it's so much could happen that we we just don't know about. You're right. I look at that field of people we just talked about. She will work harder than most of them. I do mm-hmm. think she reads too many polls. She cares about media coverage a little too much. She has her vulnerabilities. She will work really hard. She always has. Um, and that's a very mm-hmm. good point. Well, thank you for political insight, John. I know it's a media <laughs> podcast, but yeah, that's right. I like to talk about this stuff. Um, have a good week, buddy. All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.